Welcome to another episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, the Boots on the Ground podcast for replanters by replanters with your host, Bob Bickford and Jimbo Stewart. Here in the trenches with you doing the gritty and glorious work of replanting dying churches. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital, the church website and branding partner you need to help move your church forward. All right, here we are back at the boot camp. Bob, I hope you're ready for the next episode. Jack's edition got you here in the bold city for a little while. The bold and the beautiful city. Yes. It's great to be here. And I'm thankful to come to Jacksonville because Hertz always treats me right. Yes, sir. When I roll in here. I've got some giant QX Infinity. 1010-something. Yeah, the Infinity. They do the all their models are letters and numbers. Yeah. And, yeah. I had a QX4 Jimbo for a while. And give it to my daughter, and then it died a dusty death. Oh man, that's sad. You know, uh, the number the number letter models always makes you think of. Have you have you picked up on the pattern of Tesla models? Plaid is all. No, plaid, plaid is like that's not necessarily one of the models. That's a trim of a model. Okay, it's fastest car yeah. out of the factory. Yeah. No, but if you pay attention, Model S. Okay. Right. And he couldn't get Model E. He wanted Model E, but that was already owned by another company. Okay. So he did Model Three. Then he did Model X, and then Model Y, S E X Y. And then he bought Twitter. And then he bought Twitter, and all his money's gone. <laughs> so he's actually. Have you noticed? Um, like again, and I, I, I am not as up on current events as probably a third of our boot campers yeah. are, but. Twitter seems to be rebounding and, and making some good progress in the sense that, you know, all the uh, advertisers were supposed to leave when he kind of opened up the platform. Mm-hmm. And now it seems like, at least according to his tweets, they're all coming back. Okay. All right. Well, you know, if it's on Twitter, you know it's true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish that were true. Hey, speaking of things that aren't always true and how we perceive things and, you know, starting a new venture like Twitter and how well that vision is adopted or received. I wanted to do a follow-up episode today, Bob. We've talked before about the emotional cycle of change, which I do think is a very helpful tool and research as we go through any sort of change. But one of the things that occurred to me is the beginning, the assumed starting point of the emotional cycle of change is uninformed optimism. So you're starting out at, I like this idea and where we're going, and I'm pumped about it. I don't really know what it means, but I think it's great, which is not always where you start with everybody yeah. in a replant. Yeah. Jimbo, I, I have a lot of uninformed optimism when I used to go to water parks. Okay, okay. You know, water parks where you it's a hot day, mm-hmm. and you think, man, I'm going to... I'm, I'm, this is going to feel really good, and it's going to be great. And then, Jimbo, you go to the water park, and then you see humanity. Yeah, then you have informed pessimism. Yes, and then you look at the water and what's in the water. And, Jimbo, it just looks like a soup of humanity, and yeah. then I go into the pit of despair. <laughs> yeah, then you're in the valley of despair, and you got to push through the vision. Why are you there, right? And yeah. if you don't have a good reason, you're going to leave. That's my vision. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> worst worst experience I ever had at a water park was with my oldest son, and I think it was his 10th birthday or something like that. All right. And I took him, and my wife is very clear. Do not let him get sunburned. I have ginger babies we burn very easily. And so <laughs> I took spray sunscreen 
And I was like, all right, I didn't bring any other kind of sunscreen. Oh, so no. Close your eyes real tight. Oh, no. <laughs> I spray his face. It's, he started crying so bad. He he try, he really tried to put on a brave face and, and just like push through. But it was it was pretty rough. It it didn't go well. How's he doing with the loss of eyesight these days? <laughs> I think he's recovered. Uh, <laughs> it, it took a little while. He does get styes and eye infections every once in a while. Oh my god! May or may not be related. I don't know. But uh, it wasn't a good it wasn't a good run. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing that the, the emotional cycle change. Go back and listen to that episode. We actually recently had a blog episode on that yeah. uh, blog, not episode blog post. post. It was really good. But there's another piece to this, and it's really the organization as a whole. And and so I wanted to add another tool to that conversation called the Vision Adoption Cycle. This originally came from a book by Jeffrey Moore called Crossing the Chasm, which is really about marketing and selling disruptive products in mainstream to mainstream customers. And so the idea behind the original work is when you come out with a disruptive new technology, even specifically, there's going to be some people who are going to jump on real quick just because they like technology. They like new things. They want to have the newest one, even if there's bugs in it. They're fine with that. That's an easy market to sell to. But if you want to have a sustainable income for your company, you're going to have to figure out how to move from those kind of early innovators, early adapters to some middle adopters, kind of the middle of the road guys who need to see some evidence to really believe. So the whole book is this idea of that chasm between those early adopters and middle adopters and how do you jump that chasm? Well, after that was written, Aubrey Malfers wrote a church kind of version of this into a book called Pouring New Wine into Old Wineskins and adapted that. It's how to change a church without destroying it. It's actually a really good book. There's some great information on change leadership in there. And then our buddy Rob Peters has then, who is a, who is discipled, mentored by Aubrey Malfers, has adopted that into his refocus process a little bit. So I want to get some information from both of those to talk about how when you get into a church, you are excited. You're at the top of the emotional cycle of change. You're at uninformed optimism. And you might have some early adopters with you, some innovators, early adopters that are super excited about it. But in a replant, chances are you don't, right? Chances are, unless those are being transplanted into the replant from a mother-sponsored church, right? So if you have a, this is another good reason to have a mother-sponsored church that would provide some people that are actually very excited, or you might reach some young families real quick because they hear the vision and the excitement, but then you inevitably end up, and this this tool doesn't really address this necessarily, but you inevitably, if you do that and they're transplanted, they're not from there, they're not part of the legacy of that church, you, one of the things you got to be mindful of is you kind of you the chasm you got to cross there is there's a divide between what can feel like two different congregations. Yeah, it's an us and them. I I remember when we replanted Jimbo, we had a few folks that heard about what we were doing and they decided to come over and help us and be a part of it. And it it did turn into a real us and them. And we yeah. tried our best in so many ways to to break down those barriers, we did this thing called Dinners of Eight, where we mixed everybody up and they did dinner yeah. in homes. And we said, you know, I remember saying for the first year after the worship service, hey, we know you guys are going to eat lunch. Here's what we recommend. Find somebody you don't know and go out to lunch with them. Yeah. And here's the problem. All of my old folks wanted to go to Miss Sherry's Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> and all my young families had to get their kids home so they wouldn't lose their minds right. and put them to bed. Right. So... Good idea. Mm -hmm. We just couldn't make that happen on a regular basis. 
Yeah. Well, so keep in mind that that's, that's something you're going to be dealing with is you might have that to deal with. That's another, maybe a topic for another podcast to go into deeper. But just let's imagine you have some people jumping on and you're trying to get everybody else to jump on as well. Well, know that the Rob Peter says the vision adoption process is never a straight line. Vision adoption feels more like a roller coaster than a straight line. And so this is part of what we're talking about. And I think this contributes a little bit to, well, we've always talked about the kind of somewhere around year three mm-hmm. is when things, it feels like the wheels fall off. And when we first started talking about that, you know me, I'm a I'm a patterns guy. And I'm always trying to find what are the behavioral patterns. And I initially, when I was looking at that, everybody I would talk to, I was looking at the circumstances. What were the circumstances of why the wheels were falling off? And, it, and it, there was no consistency, right? I mean, it was all over the map. And so there was no pattern there other than something happened. And it would, it would be seemingly unique and like, well, no, just our year three happened to be when COVID hit. Our year three happened to be when, for us, the first Trump election and the political divide that that created in the country. And and certainly those can contribute when those types of things fall in line. But there is something to this like year three mark somewhere in that where it really seems like the wheels fall off. Yeah, I think so. You know, a lot of people talk about the honeymoon phase and I don't know how long your honeymoon phase was. Mine was like three months maybe. And so oftentimes people say it could last up to a year Mm-hmm. And then some pastors who have done turnarounds or revitalizations or replants say, hey, as much as you can, unless something is on fire and is broken and destructive, try not to change things greatly until you've been there a year. Get some yeah. trust. Pastor yeah. people get to know the people, love them, visit them, etc. So that second year then is all about starting to test the vision of, mm-hmm. okay, I've been here with you for a year. Here's what I see are some things that need some attention. And then in year three, it's really trying to launch into that vision and create change. And so I think that's that may be a common pattern yeah, or a frequent pattern. So you might find yourself at year three fighting the real battle of change that really began sometime during year one, but you publicly didn't say it. So like think about Nehemiah. Mm-hmm. He just didn't roll into town and tell everybody what he's going to do. What did he do? Well, he got on the horse in the middle of the night. He didn't really have anybody with him. And he rode around and saw, surveyed the city and saw all the things that needed to be done. Then he comes back and casts a vision. And because the Lord was with him and because the Lord moved in the people's hearts, then they they rose and they built the walls back, right? But this shows you there's this progression about like sensing and seeking the vision, having that holy discontent that we've talked about before, and then slowly moving towards casting the vision and then implementing the vision. And most of the guys, I think, culturally, maybe this is just for us in in our church and less in our churches in North America, declining churches that have a lot of money in the bank don't have a lot of urgency. Yeah. And so the change process is going to be impacted by that and it's going to take some time. Yeah, it's such a hard thing to get people on board to change something like this. And so I think it's just helpful to know that not only are you going to have an emotional cycle, but there's going to be kind of an adoption cycle, a process to everything that you're doing. And and you might get some early adopters, early innovators, whether that be through transplants, young families that join, people that hear about what you're doing. Uh, and know that that's going to be a pretty small percentage of the people. Unless you do some sort of campus model where you're transplanting a ton of people, right? right. Which is why I think we see a higher rate of success in long term with those because you're, you're the large percentage of the people are already on board with the vision. 
chances are usually two to three percent. And so Albert Malfer says the early innovators, kind of the earliest piece, make up approximately two to three percent of most established congregations. And that the early adapters, which would be that next one, and we'll have some of this in the show notes, early adapters make up eight to 18 percent of the church. And they've grown tired of the status quo because they've watched it sap the church out of its vitality. But that's probably somewhere in the beginning of decline, starting decline stage. By the time a church needs to be replanted, those people have probably left, mm-hmm. which is why you got to bring them back in. And, and so Aubrey Malfour says a key church revitalization principle is to recruit as many active, vocal allies as possible for your program of change before you introduce it to the congregation. The change agent should seek out the early adopters as his allies and rally them behind his programs and proposals. So my caveat in replanting I would give to this is if those aren't legacy people, be careful of letting them always be the voice. So I would say even if if you're replanting, in, if your early adopters are all transplants, work as hard as you can to get some from within the legacy congregation because that's the voice that they really need to hear. Absolutely. The the first group particularly depends on how you get to the church that's being revitalized or, or needing to be replanted. If there's a traditional pastoral search committee that in unity, in unison said, hey, we want this guy. What I would suggest is keeping them as a group and as a team and spending time with them as well as enfolding maybe some folks that supported you or that, that would want to help support you in the new work that have come from the outside. I did that with our search committee. I didn't have a committee that I could work with as a pastor. Most bylaws say, Jimbo, that a pastor is an ex officio member of every committee. Mm-hmm. So that means he has to attend every meeting, but he doesn't get to vote yeah. and he doesn't get to set the agenda. How crazy is that in terms of form of leadership and governance, right? So given that, one of the things I did was I said to the pastor search team, I want you guys to stay on board. I want you to transition to the pastor liaison team. And I want us to meet together on a regular basis to make recommendations to the church for change, right? So that's good. So I would suggest if you can do that, if you're just now going to a church, do that. And if you are struggling to find those early adopters who want to be on board with you, man, I, I think your your advice, Jimbo, is sage. You got to find some positive voices for change because yeah. typically in a declining church, you're going to have a lot more folks who are resistant to change. Yeah, I would say if, you know, if this all came from a document called Crossing the Chasm, assuming that you have early adopters, I would just say you probably have a wider chasm if you don't have early adopters, and you're going to have to figure out how to win over the middle adopters. Now, if you have some early adopters and they can help you win middle adopters, that's awesome. Rob Peter says the middle adopters are receptive to the new vision, but they need questions answered before they can get on board. The need for information by the middle adopters makes year two of the vision adoption process more difficult than year one because mm-hmm. there's just a slower process. They need more information. And so you may have to spend, not may, you will have to spend more time answering questions than you probably thought. Jimbo, I married a middle to late adopter. Okay. And so if we're thinking of any kind of new thing, initiative, purchase, even adopting our new dog, Dax, who we welcomed into the family mid, yeah. mid-December, Barb had a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And she's learned that 
there's a way that we can process those. And so she'll say something like, so what you're thinking is, and then she'll kind of give her perspective on what she thinks that I'm thinking. And when that matches up and perfectly aligns, it's great. When it's divergent from what I'm actually thinking, Jimbo, it gets a little more tense. Yeah. Right. So, so we live that out normally in our own lives when typically the Lord sometimes will match us with somebody who's on the different side of the scale. And so when you think about your leadership in the church, you need to think about it in the sense of, I'm going to have to explain and explain and explain again. And also... I'm likely going to have to deal with questions underneath the question. Yeah. And the question underneath the question is the the fear question, mm-hmm. right? How is this going to change, right? What is he, is he telling me this is like we went into the car dealership sales office and here's what I'm telling you, but here's what I really mean down here, yeah. right? Yeah. So it's yeah. like, we've got we've to have a full conversation and I've got to spend enough time to make sure that what I'm conveying doesn't look like I'm a shady car salesman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so middle adopters need evidence, right? Mm -hmm. They need their questions answered. They need information, education, and then they kind of need to see that it works, which if you, again, if you don't have early adopters with you, it's going to take you a long time to get that evidence. It's really, this is why you have to have initiative. This is going to be on you to try to win those middle adopters over. And if you don't have any early, this is where you start with your middle adopters. And then you get to the late adopters. And Aubrey Malfour says the late adopters are the last in the church to endorse a new idea or program of change. While they may never acknowledge it verbally, they will fall in line with the direction of the majority or the middle adopters. And so the idea here is If you can win over, if you have early adopters and you can win over middle adopters, then your late adopters will eventually come in. Now, one of the things that it often requires, if you look at some of the ways that Rob Peters has laid this out, is while the middle adopters need education, the late adopters, there has to be something emotional that changes for them. They have to see enough of the success of your leadership, of the vision change, of something hit their personal life. So they got to see their granddaughter get saved. They got to see their grandson break an addiction, or they've got to see you walk them through grief and show that you love them and you shepherd them well, and you value them as you shepherd them through some sort of hard time. But at some point, the evidence is is not necessarily what's going to win them over as much as some sort of emotional connection to you as a leader or emotional connection to the results of the new vision of the church. Yeah. It makes me think of three B's. Okay. Babies. Babies. Budget receipts. Okay. And baptisms. All right. So if your church hasn't had any babies and all of a sudden you remodel the nursery, throw away all the dangerous Mm -hmm. wooden toys and you start having babies come in. Mm Mm-hmm. And your young families who came to help you do the replant start having babies. Man, that will that's like putting gas on the fire. People are excited about that because they everybody yeah. loves a new baby, right? And budget receipts. If if you're reaching people and you start seeing people come in and people start giving towards the 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 mission and the vision and and the needs, right? I had a patriarch of the church who told me one time. He said, "Here's here's my suggestion to you." He said, "Always have something that you can share with us that we can give towards, mm-hmm. right?" And so I was like, "That's great advice, right?" Yeah. So we we raised some money. One time we cast a vision for a new mother's room that where we could bring the service from upstairs down into the basement of our church, kind of a separate fellowship hall. And so 
we cast a vision for that, Jimbo, in a, in a church family meeting, a members meeting, and we got the budget. We had somebody pay for it right then and there. Wow. Like they came up to me after the meeting and said, how much do you need? We'll write the check. Wow. Amazing. And then baptisms. What Baptist doesn't love baptism? Yeah. Only an unregenerate, cranky Baptist yeah. <laughs> who's not really a Baptist, right? Yeah. So we love baptism. You love celebrating and seeing people get saved. I mean, you talked about the granddaughter. You talked about the, the son who's you know broken addictions, all those sorts of things. Life change really helps create a flywheel of change in the congregation. Yeah, talking about the late adopters specifically as it ties to year three, Rob Peters says, year three is typically more difficult as the late adopters are grieving as they realize what they must give up in order to move ahead. They're filled with emotions, and usually the pastor and the other key leaders will need to engage these often intense emotions so the late adopters can cross over from being resistant to becoming a participant in the vision. But something has to change emotionally mm-hmm. for them. There's, there's something's going to have to make a shift emotionally. Uh, and, and so you got to be willing to shepherd the, those strong emotions that they have and understand that that is not necessarily that they are, they're not anti-adopters. That's another group we're going to get to here in a second. They're just late adopters. And there's, a, there's, there's, let them process the grief. There's real grief to what they're losing as things are changing. And, and you need to be wise enough to shepherd that with some gentleness. One of the most impactful conversations I had during that early season of our church in the process of replanting was from one of the founder's daughters, who was a baby in the nursery. Mm. And she came up to the church, so gracious, such a kind lady. And she said to me, she said, I I just, I think I want to say something to you to help you understand what those of us who've been around here are feeling. She said, when we pull up in the parking lot and we look at the building, It's the same church that we've always known. But then when we walk inside the building, it looks nothing like the church that we knew. Yeah. And her honesty Mm -hmm. in giving me her perspective, Jimbo, it really was a huge impact for me just to understand I have to be gracious with these folks because I think most replanters and revitalizers drive into the parking lot, walk into the building, listen to the worship music. And go, this is nothing like the church I want to pastor and nothing like the church I would want to attend. I've got to put it in fifth gear and put the gas down and make it like I have a vision for it as soon as I possibly can. But the problem is you could be really digging a hole underneath the foundation of the church and not realize it until it's too late. Absolutely. It takes such patience, tactical patience and wisdom and gentleness to shepherd this kind of change and... After the late adopters, you do have usually never adopters. Mm -hmm. And then you have anti-adopters. And this is going to be, you know, a different percentage. This is never adopters are going to be 10 to 15 percent usually of an established congregation. That might be a larger percentage, I would assume, in a replant. And then the anti-adopters are going to be 2 to 5 percent. And again, that might be a little larger. That's an established congregation, but... Rob Peters says the never adopters and the anti-adopters are resistant to the end. The never adopters will silently object and the anti-adopters will be the vocal opposition. It's important for the pastors and lay leaders to engage both groups. The never adopters must understand that the vision will be embraced. They've been outvoted. 
the anti-adopters must be specifically challenged, possibly even disciplined in order to beat back their opposition. If the anti-adopters are not adequately challenged, they will recruit the never-adopters, and then they become a force that has potential to undermine all the church revitalization efforts. Yeah, there, there's your three quarters supermajority right yeah. there, and it's and sometimes Jimbo, it's not even the three quarters supermajority, because I've seen church partnerships and church replant prospects fail because of a couple of votes, seven votes, where they just never are able to cross that line. The smaller the congregation, the more difficult it is to get a supermajority. Yeah, right, because it only can take just a, a handful, a small handful of folks to shoot down the plans for church renewal. So, man, be wise in how you work with the never adopters and the anti-adopters. And then I would say this, you probably will have to do some church discipline at some point. Yeah, Maybe it's informal, hopefully, and maybe it will have to come before the entire church. But what I would say is, Pastor, know your bylaws, know the scriptures, and then be equipping all along and maybe you're one and two if you have to get to this year three and this all occurs in year three, be ready to to do the loving thing to ask people to get on board or to lovingly ask them to go somewhere where they feel like they can be on board. Yeah, it's the difference. And we got to be careful here. Church discipline is necessary for anti-adopters, whereas never adopters are going to be frustrated and they might grumble a little bit, but they're probably not they're either not going anywhere or they'll silently go somewhere. They'll just ghost you. Uh, there was a lady in our church that had a blanket that saved her spot. And and literally about every few months, it would move back a few or two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Until eventually she was gone, just out of the building. She just left. And like, the blanket was gone. Yeah, no, no her. Like, just like it was her. Sl- I, I really think it was her slowly leaving our church. Wow. Like, it, it, she was like, the started like the third row, and then after about a year, it was like the fifth row, and then it would move to the sixth or seventh row, and, and then like, towards the end of her time there, it was she was sitting on the back row, and, and then eventually she left. She went to another church quietly. She didn't make a big deal. She just left. But she left the blanket? No, she took it oh, with her. Okay, she took the right. blanket with her, and she left the church. All right. That's a that's a never adopter. Yeah. An anti-adopter is someone who's going to be vocally and actively creating division, disunity. They might even be gossiping and spreading rumors that aren't true. I mean, and at that point is where you have to consider, has this gotten to a point of church discipline being necessary? Yeah, totally agree. And my earlier comments were really meant towards that end. And I, I think we did, we had to do that, Jimbo. We had... We had someone who wrote an anonymous letter and mailed it to everybody in the church. Mm-hmm. And and then we had an, another key leader and his wife who had a secret Sunday school meeting in, wow. in their home. And we and they were spreading things that were not true and saying things that were not true about our leaders and me and where we were headed and all those sorts of things. And so we had to do the, the first very first ever done church discipline action in our church. And after we did all that and they said they were going to leave the church, we didn't kick them out. They they resigned their membership and they said they were going to leave the church. After we told that to the church on a Sunday morning, we brought everybody together and explained what was going on. So many people came up after that very difficult meeting and said, this should have been done a long time ago. Mm. And so I would say to the replanters and, and revitalizers and renewal pastors out there, if you're concerned about church discipline and you're fearful of doing it, man, don't be, because it's biblical, it's in the bylaws, and it probably needs to be done for the health of the congregation. Absolutely. 
Hey guys, thanks for joining us in this conversation about the vision adoption cycle and how to shepherd through that. We'd love to hear your feedback, your questions in regards to this. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Replant Bootcamp Podcast, a resource for replanters by replanters. If you enjoyed this episode or found it to be helpful for you and your ministry, please help us get the word out by subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a review on your favorite podcast listening platform. This podcast is sponsored by 180 Digital. 180 Digital is a team of design, development, and marketing experts that love working with churches, big and small. Check out 180.church, O-N-E-E-I-G-H-T-Y.church to learn more about how 180 can help your church move forward.